Hello and welcome back to Talking Sense, the podcast. This is your second episode with me, Johnny Lawrence, and... And me, Christy Calloway-Gale. I am a first-year DPhil student in contemporary Chilean poetry in the Department of Medieval and Modern Languages. And I am also a first-year DPhil student on classical Arabic literature in the Faculty of Oriental Studies. In this episode, Johnny and I are going to be talking through some recent scholarship on the senses, which we've been discussing as a group during our workshop days. And very much in the vein of In Our Time, we will be putting our reading lists up on the website with the podcast so that you can go away and find all of the information that we will be mentioning as we've not come up with a jot. Um, We've literally just (laughs) borrowed all of it. So as any good scholar would tell you, it's all about borrowing. (laughs) And then after we've uh, finished talking about this recent scholarship, um, Johnny is then going to go and speak to Dr Jim Harris, who's been in charge of our handling sessions at the Ashmolean. So to begin, let's discuss what happened in the handling sessions. So the way Talking Sense was structured is that we had the introductory chat where we all met, lovely, we all had each other's research, (laughs) great. And then we went away over the holidays, you know, looked at the Ashmolean collection, certainly all of us looked at it and thought, oh, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to talk about, no. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Um, In the first workshop day, we we met at the museum with Dr Jim Harris, who we're going to be interviewing later on in this episode to talk about the museum and how it interacts with the senses. And then we had an afternoon of discussion and chat based around the readings and how we'd done the museum. So the museum was structured around us at first, picking up objects and trying to locate some sort of sensory engagement Mm -hmm. with the object. Christy and I had um, this sheep, (laughs) Rosalie's sheep, which was, I mean, we're laughing. It was really, it was the most awful sculpture I've ever held in my entire life. (laughs) But it was... It was interesting to get thinking about how sculptures and senses and touching and handling um, really do help us form knowledge with an object. Especially um, for us, right, because we're not really used to working with objects in exactly. our fields. We both work with literature. Yeah. Um, so that was a really good experience for us to kind of understand what we can learn from, from objects. Certainly it felt with. like more than touching the page and turning. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. um, so we talked about that in the first workshop day and we enjoyed the museum experience and the handling. And then we did two more of these workshop days. And what we generally talked about was the way that the senses have been portrayed and understood throughout time, space, and science, I suppose. So to start us off, we thought we might talk about the general history and cultural differences that people attach to the senses. And I suppose, so one of the things we talked about was that traditionally in the West and also in early Indian and Chinese culture, there are thought to be five senses. And there have been attempts to kind of change that number over time, but traditionally that number seems to have stuck, at least in those cultures. Um, Absolutely, and I mean certainly it's the same with Arabic and Persian cultures, mm-hmm, yeah. well I mean not old Persian, I don't actually know because I don't speak Pahlavi, but um, in terms of the post-Islamic Arabic cultures we do have this Greek inheritance of the five senses mm-hmm. and this number five, which we obviously link to touch, sight, hearing, smell, taste, so I almost forgot taste there, um, <laughs> absolutely, has been remarkably drawn out in ordered systems and va- there's been values attached to the different senses yeah. so and there's hierarchies as exactly, well right? yeah. so the, I think the sort of traditional hierarchy is well, in the west I should say is that sight comes sort of top yeah. and then you get hearing, smell, taste and touch being right at the bottom and something that 
uh, is really interesting about touch being at the bottom is how that sort of feeds into power relations in society and how the senses have been a, a really big part of of controlling bodies basically um, so if you think about like women's experience we read a bit about how touch is very much associated with uh, women um, and domestic space and yeah. touch as we've kind of seen is at the right very bottom of this mm -hmm. hierarchy of, of the senses um, and the working class is also well, associated yeah, exactly. with touch very much in their manual labour. Uh, manual, of course, coming from the Latin word manus, hand, mm -hmm. really links it yeah. to our, all what we think of as our main organ of touch. Although that itself is very disputed, as we were talking with you in the last episode, uh, the last workshop day, about how blind people usually touch with their feet. So mm -hmm. even the ways we understand our own body sensing is very mutable. But this idea of power, just to draw it back to what we were talking about, um, certainly when we look at the hierarchy, sight, hearing, normally at the top, associated with the intelligence mm -hmm. and intellectual senses of knowledge and learning, mm -hmm. and then you get taste, smell and touch, not in that order, it's smell, touch, taste, touch, mm -hmm. tend to be pushed to the side as these inferior ways of knowing. But that itself is very mutable. I mean, if we look at Klassen's book, Aroma, The Cultural History of Smell, I think it's called, there are various different groups across the world who use smell as their main way of knowing or main way of communicating. Mm. This is obviously very complicated because the way that we understand a different culture's understanding of the senses usually comes out of their linguistic communication mm. and how they talk about the senses. Right. So they might think of the sun smelling bad or the moon smelling good. Mm. Does that mean that their way of knowing comes from smell? Mm. Questionable. But it does mean that their communication and ideas of knowledge production are very much filtered through other forms of knowledge and other forms of sensory engagement. Yeah, definitely. And then there's the uh, Sotil indigenous community in Mexico where it's all very based on, on thermals and, and heat, um, which I suppose could be primarily to do with, with touch, although mm -hmm. some visual mm -hmm. might come into that. Um, but I think that's a really important point that basically sensory worlds are different across cultures and that they also change over time within cultures. Absolutely. And it's a big part of, that, of understanding how other people live or have lived um, and, and how if, they perceive the world. And if we think about this hierarchy, I mean, even that itself, we talk about the Western hierarchy, that's very mutable. If you look at Avicenna or if you look at Thomas Aquinas, both of them thought touch was incredibly important. Avicenna being medically trained, I mean, even seen that the whole thing, a chiffet is, um, it means the, like, mm -hmm. cure. Um, for him, touch is right at the top of this theory of senses, because it's integral for survival, in the same way that taste is, yeah. whereas sight, one can live without. Yeah, it's so interesting, though, that sight, how, I think something that I'm still thinking about, or that this is making me think about, is how sight ended up at the top in the West is a kind of fixing when you have people like, like you're saying, like Thomas Aquinas was saying that, that touch is actually really important. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some people talk about the advent of printing being really important. Yeah, I was thinking of the, the advent of um, printing on that. But I don't know, there's also, you know, people who say that all that, the impact of printing has also been, mm -hmm. been questioned. I personally think it, it is quite important and I'm... Well, I think more than just printing, writing. Is what's mm, important here. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, one you can, can I mean, if you look at cuneiform on tablets, of course, that has a, a very sensory touch based element, but it was a red language fireside. It was not a, it was not a braille. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that printing is important in the sense of drawing us towards reading in a bigger way, but the fact we've had a written language means that we, we were, you know, even if we weren't reading because we couldn't read, we were looking, you know, it's, um, 
a way of knowing that has been seen through sight almost. Mm. And this idea of knowing through sight, I've just made that sort of slip myself in a sensory podcast where I said that has been seen or something similar. Mm. We often use the verb to see mm. as a way of knowing. So I see, I know, they're, they're yeah. almost interchangeable in language. And it's, it is very interesting when you look at the way we express ourselves in linguistically on a very basic level, there's so much filtered through from past theories and past ideas of senses into how we talk. Yeah, and I think that is really interesting to think about how the senses and what you think about the senses are embedded in, in language, like you say, and I think hopefully we'll come back to that when we talk about sensory deprivation. Absolutely, Because yeah. loss is a really big of course. thing that we always talk about when we talk about sensory deprivation, but we might want to challenge that, that idea later. Um, but thinking about the, the primacy of sight, of course, in the West, say, something that we might associate with sight, like colour, mm. hasn't always been a purely sort of sight-driven thing. So maybe we yeah. should talk a bit about colour in antiquity. Blue doesn't exist. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that was, was one of the examples. Because people talk about colour in antiquity being a sort of synesthetic experience, and we'll yeah. kind of talk a bit more about synesthesia later. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because the idea of, of colour is not how we might think of it now in the West, but... It involves texture and saturation, other things. So there's been lots of theory and debate about what a colour actually meant. Purple had this very interesting, um, very interesting synesthetic quality to it, um, in which it's very much linked to the dye that makes purple. Because of course, purple is a sort of semi-natural colour. I mean, it's you can see it in violets and lavender, right. but it's not. It's, it, it doesn't seem to have that... You have to manufacture it through a dye in the ancient world. That was how they made clothing, for example, purple. Mm-hmm. And purple was also a royal colour in both Persia and Greece and Rome. So it has this striking connotation, but also a striking smell. And Pliny um, wrote this account of purple and associated it with a greedy snail that makes the dye. But the greedy snail itself comes back to the connotation of the royalty, the greedy royals. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I don't know anything about the antique, antique world, to be honest, I'm firmly the Islamic one, but um, I don't know when Pliny was exactly. But if you think about our conceptions of Roman emperors, I mean, look yeah. at Nero, for example, how we talk about Nero, it's not exactly as some big giver, is it? It's you know, hardly Nero, <laughs> well, the, general, the nice one. Yeah. <laughs> Nero the man. People of power have always been, uh, you know, in the past, at least associated with the idea of, of money, I suppose, exactly. and potentially greed as well. So this colour of the dye, the way it's talked about in Roman culture, Pliny is Roman, isn't he? I think so. Yeah, We, we think Pliny's we Roman. We think Pliny's Roman. Um, <laughs> so the way that this dye is talked about by Pliny and others really associates through the snail, royalty, colour and smell, all into this very multi-sensory engagement through the connotations of wearing the colour, not necessarily purple as an objective, yeah. separate thing. Yeah, and that does kind of link to one of the articles that we were reading that was trying to say that colour in antiquity was, was object-based, so it was about the, the skin of an object, which included yeah. things like like texture and, um, I suppose, potentially smell as well. If that object was and that links to Homer's blue problem, because right. blue, the colour, I think, it, it, it translates more as green or something, the one that they use, which, you know, the sea is green or something like yeah. that. Now that obviously, if you think about the sea, we think of it very much as blue. And of course the sea was blue in antiquity and it has remained so. And they do have blue, it's not like there's no blue, but the sea itself, if you think about the texture of the sea, 
often can look kind of green. So this idea of being of the Greeks not having um, a sensory colour in the same way that we do, but also engaging all of their senses in creating colour. Mm. This idea of synesthesia, let's talk a bit more about that. The way synesthesia is normally defined and explained is seeing like visual music, for example, or um, the taste bitter, you can hear it, that yeah. kind of thing. So you might like hear music and then see a specific colour depending exactly, on the key of yeah. the music or the notes being played or, or the pitch or something, and that that reaction is very automatic. Yeah, um, and it's brain-based. Now this is synesthesia in the neuroscientific way, where people have conditions of synesthesia, which, I mean, lucky them, I'd love to know uh, what, <laughs> what music looks like. But in the world of arts and literature, which we're based in ourselves, the term has been kind of co-opted to mean something else, which I personally have a lot of problems with. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think a lot of what is called cultural synesthesia in the arts is really more about trying to emulate synesthesia mm. or trying to create more of a multi-sensory experience. So I think the difference between multi-sensory and synesthesia is uh, interesting. I think synesthesia is quite a sexy word, and I think like... It is, yeah. You know, if you're gonna... Do you want multi-sensory or do you want synesthesia? You're gonna use synesthesia. Personally, in my own default, I'm using multi-sensory because I don't agree. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, the things I'm talking about with love and sight and taste and hearing. And I mean, my default's all about the senses and the creation of love. And you could say that talking about the gaze as a cup of wine or, you know, um, the love being the alcohol within that, you could say that's a very synesthetic idea, I suppose, mm -hmm. because it's looking at sight as a form of taste or taste as a form of sight or the crossover between them. But personally, I don't, I don't agree. It's not synesthetic in its own way. It's more of a multi-sensory engagement with the idea of creating love. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the Brazilian concrete poets who kind of influence the poets that I'm interested in, their their poetry is often talked about as being synesthetic, whereas actually it's the same as what you were saying. So it's more actually multi multi-sensory in the fact that it, it tries to engage all the senses. But I wouldn't say that, that that engagement is is automatic in the way that synesthesia is said to be. Exactly, yeah. Um, but we read some really interesting examples of how this sort of synesthetic or multi-sensory experience, I should say, uh, in the arts has tried to be created over time. And I, I found some of it quite amusing, I have to say, just because um, there's this desire to create that experience, but there's also kind of those technological difficulties that really stand in the way. So exactly, we yeah. read about the colour organ, which yeah. is an organ that you play, and then you have like a sort of light show that is stimulated by the notes that are being played. But then at the time that this is invented, um, it, there's only candlelight, there's no gaslighting, so it's really difficult to actually see this And also it's difficult to get the, one of the first colour organs didn't have any sound. Yeah, exactly, so someone would have to be playing a different organ that was actually emitting <laughs> sound at the same time that someone was playing the colour organ, so you get the sound and the light at the same time, right? So um, I think it's interesting that there's this constant drive in the art to create that experience, yeah. but technology hasn't always been, been there, at least in the mainstream, for people to take advantage of. And in criticism to discuss this idea, we often in the readings that are on that reading list on the website, you will come, will come across ideas of synesthesia being key to understanding or being able to understand the senses. And really this links to having more than five, that, you know, mm. the, the scientific idea of having 22 or so senses. Yeah, 22 um, to 23. Including interoception, ever heard of it? I haven't either. Yeah. <laughs> um, sense of knowing your body's moving. All of these things that we don't think of as part of the five senses, which themselves have become this kind of cultural idea outside, completely outside of our actual lived experience or our bodies, mm. such that, you know, we have a sense of balance, a sense of hunger, I suppose, a sense yeah. of thirst. These are all feelings that we know and have in our body that 
do really do the same thing. They're all producing knowledge for our brain. Mm. But we don't often... But we don't think of them as senses. Yeah, and I think that was really interesting. So one of... You mentioned interoception, which is the one that they really kind of go into in the, it was, uh, the podcast that we were listening to, The Uncommon Senses. And um, that was really interesting, trying to understand you know, how we how we can feel what's happening in our bodies. So I think one of the examples was counting your uh, your heartbeats in a, in a minute or something. You know, can you count your own heartbeat? Johnny's touching his pulse, trying to count. <laughs> Give it a good go. <laughs> um, I can do that. I think I was really quite bad. I think a lot of my experience in general is trying to like not really pay attention too much to how I'm feeling in the body because often yeah. it's going against what I actually have to do in, in daily life. So it's you know if I'm feeling anxious but I have to give a presentation, I'm trying not to engage with that. No, that I completely understand. Although in the so I did a mindfulness course here at Oxford, which is available to you. Mm-hmm that's affiliated to the university um, and one of the key things they taught us was to be through the day having a moment with your body yeah. and having a moment to chill out basically yeah be more aware of exactly and you have this like half a minute where you I mean I don't do it myself because I'm rubbish at it but half a minute where you sit you breathe you think about what you're feeling you think about your body feeling something and then you just react you don't react to it but you accept it and you know it mm-hmm. and then I did at the time when I was doing it more regularly I did find it quite helpful in the sense of just knowing that I am in this body and whatever I'm anxious about, this body is, it's coping, it's surviving, it's moving forward. It's not, I'm not literally on, you know, and we can talk about existentialism all you like, but as far as my body goes, Mm -hmm. it has a way of knowing that knows it's okay. Yeah, but I, I like the idea, and it's something that the, the podcast did touch on as well, that you can actually train yourself to be better in yeah. through things like mindfulness maybe. Um, but I also found it fascinating that there are maybe certain jobs that people have where or you have to be very good at interoception to do well in certain jobs. Can you give um, an example? I can't remember. Yeah, so like there's an example of stock market traders, because there's this of kind of classic so. idea that they mentioned on the podcast where if you're a stock market trader, you often act on gut feelings. So you have to really be in tune with your gut. That's literally what they say. And I found that really funny. But the more kind of um, extended example they give is with a hostage negotiator, where you yeah. can actually really see how you need to be engaged with, with how you're feeling to be able to negotiate mm-hmm. that situation uh, successfully. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, so linked to the idea of do we have five senses or do we have more than five senses is this idea of the sort of the sixth sense and the mystical extra, sixth yeah, sense the sixth sense and the extrasensory perception um, which has very um, well it has it, it, it's have, it has both very interesting multisensory dimensions but also creative explanations and artistic and literary ph- like phenomena so if we think about it as a multisensory engagement perhaps the idea of um, having some sort of knowledge more than the five senses or a vision more than a vision if you know what I mean Mm -hmm. these ideas really come through all forms of bodily knowing you know Mm -hmm. um, having this kind of telepathy or the idea of all of this stuff is a kind of way of knowing beyond those five but just to draw back to side phenomena and more yes, than that. Yeah. I wanted to talk about divinity for a second. Oh yes, yeah, because that is something that we've really um, touched on a few times in the in the workshop days. Um, and I think specifically we, we've talked about how scent and religious practice are often quite, uh, quite interlinked. I think before we started the workshop days, I would have probably kind of, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe very naively and also, um, 
yeah, it's sort of coming from the West, uh, Western tradition as well, I would have said, oh, you know, maybe sight, you know, the idea of mysticism or something or like that. Or seeing God in a vision. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but, but no, but smell is actually something that's come out as being really important. Um, and I think the really interesting uh, thing about smell is that it's really hard to contain smell in a space. That's what some of the readings have been talking about. And how it's very ephemeral. Yeah. And difficult to define. It's difficult to define, but it also transgresses these uh, boundaries. Um, and so that's why it's like a really good way of, of speaking or sort of dialoguing with the divine mm-hmm. um, because it's it's going to transgress that boundary between the human and the, and the divine. Um, smell itself actually, that just reminded me of my own object that I'll be talking about in my gallery talk um, is a tile painting of the story of uh, Yusuf Wazilekha from the Iranian tradition, mm-hmm. well, the Islamic tradition. Um, but I was thinking of the, the novel version written by Maulana Jami in the 15th century and how when I was reading it, I really felt like there was this engagement both reader-author, character-character and character-god, reader-god, author-god, wow, okay, yeah. all of this going through the sense of musk and avarice and various other senses that are being floated around the text where the people are constantly compared to the smell or the god is constantly compared to the smell or the reader and the author have this sensory smell-based interaction mm-hmm. where the text itself is said to give off a holy scent based on the, yeah. um, the divinity of the story as a text. Mm. And is that talked about as being a, a, a nice smell? Oh yeah, so yeah. Amagris and Musk at the time would have been I mean, they're not very fashionable now, but they would have been extremely Extremely. pleasant. Yeah, Yeah, because, so some of the examples from the Christian tradition are that corpses that smell particularly nice are supposed to be quite the same. Um, We've also come across examples in in, um, Buddhist culture, for instance, where like flesh-eating demons who are bad, you know, smell bad too, they live in dung heaps. So there is, that seems to be that sort of cross-cultural... Yeah, smell really does have value judgments attached to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly it's... Good smells are divine, but bad smells are evil. But then, how does that translate into also discussions of power and class? Well, yeah, exactly, because smell historically has been used to justify segregation. So exactly. certain racial groups or certain gender-type women have been associated with bad smells, and so. Or, yeah. I mean, the the we often use smelly with a national group. When we want well, to exactly. get rid of them, you know, well, that's, yeah, yeah. racialize. Uh, sorry, it justifies this yeah. racial segregation, um, but also it comes back to a, a religious context as well because smell is very much also about or has been associated with personal religious identity. So there's been this idea that you could actually sniff out a convert. Yes. And how how ominous is that idea? That could, because yeah. for me, like you, it's quite hard to perceive your own smell, and so the idea that someone could actually like sniff out your your religious conversion. Mm-hmm. Knowledge, non-knowledge perhaps, I mean, how much could they really smell a convert, you know? Yeah, um, well, exactly. Using that to justify persecution. But people say that, okay, so yes, you might associate a certain smell with a certain racial group, for instance, and that is culturally imbued, but because it's so strongly culturally imbued, people do actually experience that Well, smell I'm thinking about garlic, actually, at this moment, because okay. when I was a child, my parents would never cook with garlic, and they were very mm-hmm. nervous yeah. about the smell of garlic. And they used to talk about it coming through your pores and how they could smell it wherever they were. Yeah. All of a sudden, in the last 10 years, I never hear this anxiety about garlic among British people anymore. It's become such a standard part of our diet that yeah. either we're so used to smelling it all the time that no one really cares, or we just haven't, we don't have that culturally imbued sense of garlic as a bad smell anymore. I don't know what's quite changed, but I do, I have sort of noticed this shift in the way we think about garlic. 
yeah. as a specific sense. Let's turn briefly to sensory deprivation. I mean, it's kind of mm. a weird link that I just made there, but um, so definitely something that we must talk about in this podcast. Yeah. The problems that I have, for example, mm. as a fully sen- senses, sen- I should have to say it, as a person with all of my yeah. sensibilities, um, sensibilities and sensibilities, uh, that's nice. And um, <laughs> I, I, pers- I, you know, I can see, I can hear, I can taste, I can touch, I can smell, thank mm. God. Um, I really struggle. I suppose, to conceive of what blindness means or what deafness means. Well, definitely, because we've talked a lot about whether, so if someone is visually impaired or they're blind and they're using their their hands, say, I know we've talked about uh, touching through the feet, but say in this instance, Mm -hmm. directly using your hands to touch an object to understand what the object looks like. We've talked about whether touch is a really a replacement for sight, or mm-hmm. actually there are other opportunities where yeah. you can you're engaging with m- many other things uh, directly, like texture, weight, temperature, exactly. and and how also that we are really we are taught in Western culture because sight is so important. We are taught how to look and how to learn from looking. Mm-hmm. We're talking a lot about the relationship between knowledge and the senses. Yeah. But we have also talked in the workshops about okay if we're if we're given the chance to touch an object, we need to be told how to touch. Exactly. Well, this is what we have with Rosa B. Sheep. Both of us standing, sitting there, you know, touching this sheep, thinking, how well, the hell? At the same time, because that's not allowed, but yeah, no. <laughs> one at a time. One at a time, please. Um, wondering, how the hell am I going to make a three minute presentation, let alone any longer, about this sheep yeah. just from touching it? Now, that, as you say, is because I've never been trained to touch, yeah. to so know you, through touching. Yeah. But then I was thinking about Braille. So if I look at a piece of Braille, I'm always going to read it. My fingers don't have that sensibility. Mm-hmm. They can't distinguish the dots between them because A, I've never been taught how to do it, and B, I'm just not practised. Mm-hmm. But then if one is blind, it's a different, it's a different sensory modality. I mean, it's, it is exactly as you say, more of a training to touch and know through touching. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a question of if I'm in the museum and I'm looking at an object, and a blind person's in the museum and they're touching the object, mm-hmm. We will know different things about that object. Yeah. But could I ever know the same thing? You see, because I can see. So without, without covering the object from me and just being just wanting to touch it, could I ever replicate that experience? I think probably not. Yeah, and also, you know, even if you try and replicate that experience, there's always going to be a situation where at the end the blindfold comes, comes off. off. Yeah. And if you've been born blind, then... That you, never happens. That, that never happens. Um, um, but I think there's one important thing that we just wheel back to quickly thinking about sensory deprivation Absolutely. is um you know we were talking earlier about how much senses and the way we understand the senses are embedded in language and we mm-hmm. often think mm-hmm. about sensory deprivation as being a type of loss mm. or loss of one sense what we call a deprivation um, I mean. well exactly yeah um and that kind of has negative connotations but it hasn't always been that way so yeah. in greek culture vision was really important but if you were blinded uh, in sort of Greek narratives, um, you were often given an ability in another realm. So, like, if you were blinded, you would be able to... Well, I mean, look at Homer. He's got that wonderful literary ability given to him because of his blindness. Like, they're very intrinsically linked in the text. Yeah, and then, like, with the classic example, I guess, is Oedipus Rex, where he's blinded and that coincides with a sort of self-revelation. I think it's, like, anagnorisis, going back to my... (laughs) Well, certainly, in, in Arabic, we have... There's a really strong link between what well, it's the same English really linguistically sight and insight. So basr is sight, and then basira is insight. And there's this sort of not well known at all, but it's a text I've read. Where it's a biography of this 
doctor, literature kind of guy called Dawood al-Antaki, um, written by Ibn Masoom. And the biography draws out, because Dawood al-Antaki is blind, but draws out that he has this healing kind of ability of the doctor that comes from his inner side, his basira. Um, and there's this big, big part of the, the way of describing, not describing this man, but retelling his life, yeah. is that he may have been physically blind, but he was definitely in tune with knowledge production mm, through yeah. an internal sense of sense, I suppose. Yeah. And I guess this is going to be you know, really important when we go and talk to, to Jim now, or I should say Dr. Jim, Jim Harris, Harris. Yeah. <laughs> um, about the senses in a museum setting. But yeah, without wanting to steal too much of what Jim is going to say, the museum is is currently a very sort of site Ocular-centric, yeah, you might say. Um, so it's going to be interesting to think about how we can engage our other senses in a museum setting um, mm-hmm. appropriately. Definitely. And what, should we go and talk to Jim now? Yeah, why not? So we're in the, we've come to the new Douse room in the Ashmolean Museum, which is the home of the university's print collection. And I have to say, a very beautiful room to look around. And we're talking to Dr Jim Harris, the teaching fellow at the teaching Ashmolean, curator teaching curator at the Ashmolean um, about the museum about the Ashmolean's engagement with the project mm-hmm. and its own engagement with its collections yeah. so Jim just to start us off what did you hope to get out of or what did the Ashmolean rather hope to get out of involving itself with the Talking Sense project well there's a number of things you can look at it through the long lens in which working with Talking Sense and working with you with this group of um, graduate students who are engaged in research in various areas of the university is a part of our broader engagement with our parent institution as a university museum. Mm-hmm. It's our responsibility to engage academically with our colleagues, not just in those obvious disciplines of art history and archaeology, if you like, but also more broadly across the wide disciplinary range of an institution like this. Um, so in that wide sense, it fits with our programme of academic engagement across the museum. Uh, More narrowly, it interests me because what this project does is it enables researchers to focus very tightly on individual objects, pairs of objects, which do two things. One is it gives us an insight into the kind of research that's being done. And number two, it enables us to understand more about our collections. Because clearly, as a curatorial body, we have expertise in various areas, which is why um, we are a wide curatorial body with, with quite narrow specialisms. But when we encounter people whose specialism is in other areas, it illuminates the collections for us in new ways and enables us to think about our interpretation and display in new ways. So really for us, it's a kind of way of experimenting with the collections, of seeing them through new eyes and understanding them from different angles. And this project sort of dovetails onto talking religion, which happened last year. What's the differences and similarities for the museum between the two projects? Well, that's an interesting question. The talking religion uh, was focused on a temporary exhibition, um, which was itself one of the outputs of a long and uh, quite deep research project funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, thinking about uh, the emergence of great religions in the first millennium Uh, of the common era as visual cultures Mm -hmm. but because it was a temporary exhibition that collection of objects has now gone some of them are still here in our permanent collections but some of them were on loan and some of them will never come to Oxford again and so it's a difficult thing to replicate 
what Talking Sense does is it allows researchers to focus on the things that are always here, the things that belong in our permanent collections, which are on display to the public. So things which people might have seen before, but which they've never seen in this light. And so Talking Sense, if you like, we hope will operate as a model for future interactions with uh, early career researchers and our permanent collections, which enable members of the public to come and hear about cutting-edge research, relate it to the things that they might be familiar with, that they've seen a hundred times before, but are then enabled to think about in a new way. Absolutely. And we've been talking just broadly in this episode about um, the senses in their cultural, historical, etc. meanings. How does the Ashmolean Museum deal with its sensory obligations, so to speak? Um, as <laughs> difficult question. Often, you know, ocular etc. Yeah, so, difficult question. The, um, the senses that operate in museums are uh, very often only sight. Mm. Um, we look at things. Um, we tend to keep quiet in museums because museums encourage this kind of quasi-devotional uh, attitude on the part of visitors. Uh, we certainly don't taste things or smell things um, and we generally don't touch things Mm -hmm. however there are ways in which we're able to uh, deploy the senses in a museum context Uh, for instance our learning department who work with schools um, have worked with visually impaired students uh, in ways and contexts which enable students to touch things um, and I've witnessed this actually when I've been teaching in our 19th century galleries watching a visually impaired school student of maybe uh, 9 or 10 years old who was being able to touch a sculpture um, such that he could apprehend it in a different way from his classmates that's one sensory engagement there is also uh, the question of sound in a museum is interesting because you do uh, experience sound in a museum in a number of ways when a gallery is full a buzzing schools group or of a discussion between students uh, then it takes on a life which is very different from that kind of uh, almost silent devotional atmosphere I was talking about before and very often weirdly that encourages other people to come and look because if they sense interest around something then they will go so I think one of the things the talking sense will do is by simply having people talk in the galleries it will encourage people to look more closely and it will encourage people to come and listen we can't do much about, um, well, what can we not do? We can't do much about actually tasting things, but you have to remember that taste is central to everything a museum does. Our collections are a collection of collections, and they're informed by the taste of the people who have put them together. This room, the new Douse room, is named for a man who collected, in the late 18th and early 19th century, Francis Douse collected prints and drawings and coins and medals and all sorts of things which he gave to the university in 1834. So our understanding of his practice as a collector is informed by his taste. Um, and I realise that's stretching the idea of taste a little, but you know. Well, not necessarily. It's kind of the modern European... Version of taste. Expansion of taste yeah. into the aesthetic sense. But, but one of the things that this project, Talking Sense project, has illuminated for us already, in, even in the research stage, is the extent to which the objects that we make, the images that we make, um, do genuinely touch on all our senses. In our visual life, we want to be reminded of the rest of our sensory existence. Um, The things that we make, which we regard in some ways as purely functional, nonetheless feed into uh, 
the way in which we live and move as as people. Um, a cooking pot is not just about its shape and its form, but it's about the things that are produced within it. And one of the beauties of this project is its capacity to evoke the senses, even in objects which don't represent them. This is not just a project in which we look at pictures of fish, you know, and we think about eating fish. This is a project in which we engage with the senses in all kinds of ways, which is why having researchers from different disciplines is so helpful, because it, this is not a purely visual project. This is not a purely material project. This is not um, a purely functional project. This is somewhere where function and content of an image and the materiality of the object all feed into one another. And recreating all the sensory experiences that go with that is going to be one of the most exciting things to see. Lovely. So how did you so how did you structure the workshop days that we had and came? So for most of us, we're very new. I mean, Christy yeah. and I particularly have never really done any art history before or no. looked at objects. So how did you structure that for our learning? Well, you talk about looking at objects, and the key to the structuring of the workshops was to think about the business of looking and how we look and how carefully we look and what kind of information we can derive from looking. Uh, what non-art historians tend to believe is that art history is about knowing a lot of things. Um, just as any discipline is about knowing, a, there is a body of knowledge associated with a discipline. Part of the purpose of the workshop was to strip away the body of knowledge and to encourage people to think about what they could actually see. So we spent a lot of time looking very closely and intently at individual things and then trying to understand something of their story on the basis of what we could see. And that might be their material story, the way in which they were made, their physical history, the way in which they've been used. It might be to do with their iconography and content, but certainly not only that. So really the fundamental issue, certainly in the early parts of the workshops, was simply to practice looking, to be in an environment where observing, saying what you can see is central. And then to put together those observations in a kind of coherent narrative of some sort, and primarily a narrative which is useful to the individual researcher, in other words, something which is of interest to them, and from which they can make a springboard into their own work, and then which will allow them to talk about their own work, because really these, uh, these talks will be about the research that's being done, as well as about the objects. These are not talks to come to, if you're just interested in knowing the facts of this thing in the case. These are talks to come to if you want to know really what's going on in the university mm -hmm. and what people's research interests are. So that was one thing in the workshops. Then there have been other things in the workshops which are to do with uh, the practicalities of collaboration. How do two people from different disciplines talk about similar things together? And how do they allow their research interests to feed into one another? Um, there are other practical things about being in a gallery and doing a talk, which we've thought about as we've moved around the museum. We've encountered school groups and we've encountered people who want to join in. And we've encountered places where the object that you want to look at is a very small thing at the back of a case. All those practical questions are ones which simply require practice. You have to get used to the circumstances of delivering a talk in a museum environment. So I hope part of the use of the the workshops was to just begin to uh, understand what that feels like um, and from my point of view as teaching curator here uh, this is central to the work I'm trying to do which is fundamentally about 
our wider academic engagement, so where we began this conversation, uh, the idea that the University Museum belongs not just to the art historians and the archaeologists, but to all of us, and the idea that it is of benefit to the museum to engage with the wider academic community. And so uh, finding new ways to do that, and particularly finding ways to do that with people who are at the beginning of their research careers, who will be taking on the teaching burden of the university, whose research will feed the next generation of scholars, and establishing the object, if you like, and the museum as a thing and a place in which research can be done and spoken about and shared is really what my work is all about. So this is a perfect fit for me and I intend to steal the idea and use it shamelessly as much as I can. Um, so I'm very grateful to um, Hugo and Helena and the rest of you for, for organising this and for um, seeing it through because it really is fundamental to this aspect of our work as a university museum. Great. Well, it looks like we can look forward to a few more years of talking something. Talking um, something, yes. Talking something strangely uncompelling title, but talking dot, dot, dot. dot, dot, dot. Talking ellipsis. Yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> so in the next episode of Talking Sense, the podcast, we will be presenting the gallery talks. You'll be hearing from different researchers presenting different research aims and projects as they happen. Thank you very much. Music for the show was by David Hillowitz, Moment of Truth piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited and produced by me, Christy Calloway-Gale. And me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>